Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Happy May 2nd. Can you believe it? It's May 2021. I just barely got used to 2021. And here we are in May. Well, we're uh, continuing on in our studies through the book of Romans. So uh, let's turn there together. Romans chapter 1. Last week I read to you a quote from James Montgomery Boyce, um, an uh, evangelical leader, pastor, writer. He uh, passed away in 2000, and he, he wrote in the beginning of his commentary on the book of Romans that Christianity has been the most powerful transforming force in human history. And the book of Romans is the most basic the most comprehensive statement of true Christianity. And the gospel is the most important thing that our culture, that our world need today, and frankly, at, at any time, but especially today. And frankly, also, it's good to be reminded that the gospel is not just for everybody else, all those crazy, evil, sinful people out there, but the gospel is the most important thing for all of us. And so it's a tremendous blessing to be able to be studying through um, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Last, last Lord's Day, we looked at verses 1 through 7, where we saw Paul's greeting to the church. And uh, this morning, Lord, Lord willing, we're going to continue on and look at verses 8 through 17, where broadly speaking, the gospel is the subject. Um, and so that makes sense because the whole book of Romans really is an exposition of the gospel. It's an unpacking, uh, a defense of the gospel. What is the Christian message? Where does it come from? That's really what the book of Romans is about. And as Paul introduces the book of Romans, he uh, continues to introduce it here by introducing the subject of the gospel. So we're going to see that in verses 16 through 17. But really, as I mentioned, the, the gospel is the dominating uh, theme here in verses 8 through 17. So that's how we're going to organize our study the subject is the gospel, and uh, we're going to look at these five uh, truths about the gospel in these verses. And the first one is that the gospel produces thanksgiving. The gospel produces thanksgiving. So let me just read the passage, and then we're, we'll come back to verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, Paul writes, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will 
I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, as I mentioned, the first thing we see here is that the gospel produces thanksgiving. And we see that in Paul's words in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul wanted to say this first. Here he is giving this detailed explanation and defense of what Christianity is all about, what the Christian gospel is, but first he wants to thank them, and specifically he wants to thank God for them. And this is not unusual for the Apostle Paul. This is his usual pattern in his letters, um, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, have similar statements where he thanks God for those churches. There's uh, similar statements in the pastoral epistles as well. One example is in Ephesians 1, verses 15 and 16, where Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. So can you guess what is an exception to that rule from Paul in the New Testament? Galatians. Galatians. There's, there's no statement like this at the beginning, I thank God for you. Instead, it's Paul saying, I fear for you. I'm concerned about you. Who has bewitched you? That's what he says to the Galatians, but everyone else, he, he thanks God for them. And why did Paul thank God for the believers in Rome? Because he says, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And when Paul says it's proclaimed in all the world, we're not to take that absolutely, woodenly, literally, but throughout the the known world at the time, so that wherever Paul was going in his various missionary journeys, uh, people had heard about the Christians in Rome. The seat of the Roman Empire contained believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and their faith in Jesus was being talked about because their faith was not secret or hidden. Their faith was producing fruit that people 
noticed and were talking about in other parts of the known world at the time. Today, we would say it's trending. And what was trending in terms of people's talk back then was the believer's faith in Rome. Uh, the believers in Rome had turned from their Greco-Roman idols, and they had turned to serve the living and true God of the Bible. They were letting their light so shine before men that people were able to see their good works and glorify their Father in heaven. They were loving one another, and so demonstrating to a watching world that they were truly Christ's disciples. And so that rejoiced Paul's heart. But Paul gave credit where credit was due. He encouraged the Roman believers, but he thanked God. And what a change. What a change. Here we're studying through the book of Romans, but we, we just got through working our way verse by verse through uh, the book of Acts, and the book of Acts, we saw the conversion of Paul. In chapter 8, he was introduced to us as uh, Saul of Tarsus, and he was breathing threats and hatred, we're told in Acts chapter 8, against the disciples. Saul of Tarsus hated Jesus, he hated the church, he hated Christians, and he tried to destroy the church, and what a change that here he's thanking God for Christians being Christians, for Christians faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the gospel does in our hearts. God gives us a new heart, takes away our heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh, a pliable, soft heart, and one of the first things that our new heart in Christ does is we give God thanks. We give God thanks for every good and perfect gift in our lives. We give God thanks for our salvation. And we give God thanks for what God is doing through other people. And Paul is certainly an example of that. The gospel produces thanksgiving. Then as we move on, we notice that the gospel motivates gospel-oriented prayer. The gospel motivates gospel-oriented prayer. Your outline says it motivates prayer. Well, it does. But more specifically, it motivates gospel-oriented prayer. And that's what we're going to see in verses 9 through 15. So there's a bunch of individual specific things. Uh, that Paul mentions in terms of his praying. But taken together, that's what these prayer requests are all about. This is gospel-oriented prayer. So notice verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. We did mention this last time that when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, he was writing to them from afar. He had never met them. He had never been there, and he, and he really wanted to. And 
probably by uh, Paul basically taking an oath at the beginning of verse 9, for God is my witness. Maybe the reason for him doing that is to reassure the church in Rome that he really wanted to go there. Maybe just like the rest of the world was talking about the faith of the Roman believers, so the Roman believers were aware of the missionary travels of the Apostle Paul, and maybe they're thinking to themselves, well, how come Paul never comes and visits us in Rome? Who knows? But Paul found it necessary to assure them, even calling upon God as his witness, that he consistently, without ceasing, regularly prayed for them and specifically asked God that he would be able to go visit them. And so Paul was regularly praying that he might visit them in Rome. And for what purpose? Notice verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Notice that Paul was not motivated to go to Rome to do uh, missionary sightseeing. But he was motivated to go to, Ro to Rome for a very specific gospel-oriented purpose. He wanted to see them for sure but he wanted to impart to them some spiritual gift to strengthen them. And as you might imagine, there's uh, different opinions among Bible commentators about what exactly that means, this uh, imparting of some spiritual gift. Paul's going to go on in Romans chapter 12 and talk about spiritual gifts. He gives a representative list in chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, and he was an apostle, and God was validating the unique ministry of the apostles when they walked on the earth by imparting uh, miraculous uh, uh, spiritual gifts, gifts of the Spirit, through the hands of the apostles. That could be what Paul has in mind, but there's other commentators, and frankly, I'm gravitating towards this position, and I'll try to explain why. That is not talking about spiritual gifts as we typically imagine spiritual gifts. But he's thinking about um, the visit as a whole. In fact, he alludes to that. So at the end of verse 11, he says, I, I, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, then in verse 12, he seems to explain what he means by that. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, that's the spiritual gift. So Paul wants to go to them, not to lay hands on them and supernaturally, in an apostolic manner, impart a supernatural spiritual gift to them, but he wants to go to them so that they would be mutually encouraged um, and so that he would strengthen them. And think, think about that. Here's Paul's letter. Probably the most famous 
letter in world history, the book of Romans. The, the mo- I think the, the most profound presentation of the Christian faith in, in the Bible, Paul wrote this. And this guy who wrote Romans, not a commentary on Romans, but Romans, the author of the book of Romans, wants to go visit the Romans. What do you think they're going to talk about? They're going to talk about the book of Romans. And, and you realize that when people popped in and visited in the ancient world, like Paul, it wasn't like an overnight stay or a long weekend. Paul would probably stay weeks or months. He stayed in Ephesus three years. He, he was hoping to spend some time in Rome talking about not just going over the letter again, but, but talking about uh, this theology, this doctrine, this truth that he writes, writes about in the book of Romans and then the practical implications of this gospel in their lives. And he's going to do that over an extended period of time. And to me, it makes a lot of sense that that is the spiritual gift he's talking about. Them spending time together around the word of God, him instructing them and teaching them, them being able to share with Paul what God had been doing in their midst, them asking Paul questions, sharing testimonies, Paul getting involved, going house to house, maybe even doing some pastoral counseling. You could see how that would be an environment that is just absolutely rich with spiritual strength and mutual encouragement. So whether that take on the spiritual gift that Paul is alluding to in verse 11 is on the mark or not, you could, you could see that uh, it was a very, very important time that he was looking forward to and no doubt the church in Rome was looking forward to as well. And by the way, we see here too that this is the purpose of spiritual gifts. What is the purpose of spiritual gifts, no matter what they are? It is to strengthen the faith of believers. It is for believers to mutually encourage one another. It's not a sideshow, not a circus. It's not to make an individual look important, but it is for gospel-centered purposes. Then, moving on, Paul says in verse 13, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he's looking for spiritual fruit among them. That's his motivation for praying that he would be able to to visit them. Um, When he talks about a, a harvest, reaping some harvest. He probably means a, a spiritual harvest. So remember, the reputation of Rome is the, the center of the Roman Empire, the Roman culture, the Roman religion, which is all bound up 
in the empire and the culture. And all of these people who were largely Gentiles, he's writing to, there were Jews in Rome. They probably were expelled uh, by the time Paul wrote this letter. So they're largely Gentiles. Therefore, before they were Christians, um, they were rank idol worshipers. And he's looking for spiritual fruit, um, a harvest of spiritual fruit from their conversion, resulting perhaps from the believers growing in their understanding of the gospel because the gospel produces fruit. Growth from understanding the implications of the gospel in their lives. Maybe they're realizing more than ever, wow, God has forgiven me of so much. I'm going to forgive others. Wow, Jesus purchased me with his own blood. I belong to Jesus, body and soul. I'm going to live that way. And maybe also, because he says, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, maybe also Paul is thinking about some evangelism opportunities in Rome among unbelievers. And so that probably is included under the canopy of this term to reap some harvest among you. I believe that Paul's language here is in keeping with what Jesus said in Matthew 9.37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so here's Paul, a laborer, ready to go harvest. Then notice verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. So barbarians were Gentiles, that is, um, non-Jews. But then they didn't have the benefit of the refinement of Greek culture. They're barbarians. Both to the wise and to the foolish. Verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. At first glance, when Paul says, I am under obligation, um, at first glance, that might sound a little rude. On the one hand, Paul is saying, I'm praying all the time without ceasing that God would enable me to visit you in Rome. Then in verse 14, oh, and I feel myself under obligation. I mean, how would you feel? How would you feel if one of your friend, your uh, childhood friends or a sibling or a parent or whatever, son or daughter, they, they come and they visit you and they say, well, I'm going to come visit you because I'm obligated. Right? I mean, that doesn't sound super charming and enthralling and exciting. Um, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's basically <clears throat> adding to or putting the exclamation point on the desire he had to go to Rome. Uh, in, in addition to everything he's already touched on, in addition to that, on top of all that, he saw himself as under obligation 
to preach the word of God. In other words, the reason why Paul was going all around the known world at the time, the reason why he was putting himself in peril constantly, the reason why he was suffering the way that that he did, is because he was under obligation from the Lord Jesus Christ who saved him when he was on the road to Damascus to preach the word, to go around the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. That was Paul's calling, and that included Rome. And so Paul saw his going to Rome as completely consistent with Christ's calling of him to be not only a missionary, but a minister of the gospel. And every other minister of the gospel since then can relate to that. Listen to R.C. Sproul from his commentary on the book of Revelations, uh, book of Romans. It's the book of Revelation, no S on the end, book of Romans. R.C. Sproul writes, from the beginning of his ministry to the very end, Paul was acutely conscious of the burden that Christ had put upon him as an apostle of God's gospel. He knew that it was his duty, or that his duty was to communicate the full counsel of God. That burden has been shared by every earnest minister of the gospel ever since. The pulpit is not a place for the minister to orate or opine on his personal preferences or insights. The pulpit is where the word of God is to be proclaimed. And the burden of everyone who stands in it is to make sure that the whole counsel of God is to be given to the people of God. And amen. Like, I totally get that. Um, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you there's plenty of times, plenty of weeks when I don't feel like doing this. Or there's plenty of days during the week when I know Sunday is coming and I don't feel like studying or preparing. And the reason that I eventually do isn't because it's a hobby. It's because I can honestly relate to what the Apostle Paul says, I am under obligation. That that's why a call is so important to a Christian minister. And, you know, following the steps that the Bible outlines, um, you know, in, in principle is very important because a minister of the gospel needs to have this front and center in his consciousness all the time. And I can also relate to what uh, R.C. Sproul mentions here about not orating or opining on his personal preferences or insights. I feel sorry for pastors who um, they, they minister in, let, let's call them um, seeker-friendly church growth-oriented churches. And I mean, we want our church to grow and we want to be sensitive to seekers and visit. That, you know, that's not it, but it's an easy way to, to refer to them. 
And the, the way to think of them is that their, their main point in the public ministry is to appeal to people. Whereas I believe the main point in the ministry of the word of God, I mean, I want you guys to understand. I want it to be interesting. Like Paul, I want it to produce fruit. But, but you're actually not the main reason why God, I'm preaching the word of God. People are not the main reason why gospel ministers preach the word of God. It's because of God himself. In fact, if you keep your finger here in, in Romans chapter 1 and look in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This same apostle Paul wrote to Timothy later on. 2 Timothy 4 starting in verse 1. I charge you, listen to this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's, when it's acceptable and when it's not acceptable. When it's popular and when it's not popular. When people are nice to you and when people are persecuting you. In season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But you'll notice that Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word. It's not primarily because of you. It's primarily because of God. And every preacher and teacher of the word of God will give an account for what he says in the name of God to God. That's why James says, let not many of you become teachers because you will endure a stricter judgment. But anyway, I, I really appreciated this uh, quote from R.C. Scroll. So Paul was under obligation to, to preach the word of God that's why he was praying so steadfastly that he could visit Rome. He saw all the dots connecting in Rome. Little did Paul know that his prayer would be answered years later as he would be brought to Rome in chains as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. But that's how God often answers our prayers. God is not our servant. He's not our slave. He's not our genie. He delights to answer the prayers of his people. And it's true that the, right, the, uh, uh, the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. But God answers our prayers in his way and according to his timetable. And God gave... Paul, the desire of his heart. He brought him to Rome, but under different circumstances than Paul could have imagined. But Paul rejoiced in those circumstances, and the gospel went forth in the Roman Empire. So once again, you draw a circle around uh, verses 9 through 15, and what is this? This is gospel-oriented prayer, and this is what the gospel does. 
the gospel motivates us to pray, for sure, but the gospel also motivates us to pray for the right thing and in the right way. So, for example, our prayers as believers, they're not always, Lord, bless me, heal me, provide for me, enrich me. And, oh, the people that I love, bless them, heal them, enrich. I mean, there's, that, that's a legitimate thing to pray for. But if that's the extent of our prayer lives, well, then where's the gospel? And where's the kingdom? But when the gospel changes our hearts, it motivates us to pray. And we see the kingdom of God as the main enterprise, the main purpose of time, of what's going on in the world today. And all of a sudden, we take an interest in it and we pray for that. And that's what Paul did. It's a great example of that. Next, we see in verse 16a that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Verses 16 and 17 are really the heart of this passage, if not the heart of the book of Romans. Notice what Paul says in verse 16a. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, lest there be any lingering doubt that the reason he hadn't visited Rome is because of shame? Of course not. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What an important statement Paul makes here. The gospel is the power of God. Notice that the gospel is not its own power. That the words of the gospel don't carry with them their own inherent power. Paul says it is the power of God. It is the power that originates in God. It flows from God's infinite reservoir of omnipotence. And this is important because the gospel overcomes otherwise insurmountable opposition. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what does the power of God working through the gospel accomplish? The Apostle Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1, verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 1 Peter 1, 23. And in case there's any doubt about what that word of God is, in 1 Peter 1, 25, Peter adds, And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. So the gospel is the power of God. God works through the gospel. He channels his saving power through the gospel. He brings about the new birth through the gospel. So that in a mysterious way, 
when sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins, enemies of God, alienated from the life of God, in love with their sins, they hear the gospel. And then God invisibly and behind the scenes sends the Holy Spirit to, to work through that message. And then he opens their eyes and unstops their ears and rejuvenates their hearts. And then they believe. They repent. And they turn from their sin and they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the power of God in the gospel on display. And in case we're tempted to think that the power of God that flows through the gospel and produces the new birth is dependent on any form of human power, the Apostle John reminds us in John chapter 1, verses uh, 12 and 13, that the new birth is not the result of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The gospel is the power of God. And that is going to be brought out extensively in the rest of the book of Romans. The, the message of Christianity is not what you can do for God. The message of Christianity is what God does for sinners by his power, by his grace, through the gospel. And notice that the power of God through the gospel knows no partiality. Second half of verse 16. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That the power of the gospel knows no boundaries in terms of divisions between people. The, um, the most obvious way for Paul to divide up humanity in that context were Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. And he does say to the Jew first, because God did deal exclusively with the Jews, the physical offspring of Abraham, for centuries. But it was always God's purpose that through Abraham, all of the families, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. But the gospel was to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And it's always been the case that wherever the gospel is preached and believed, that divisions and barriers that separate people according to the flesh come crumbling down. <coughs> it's not that we all dress the same, cut our hair the same, have the same dialect and accent or customs or cultural express expressions. That's not it at all. Christianity does not teach this cookie-cutter, monolithic approach to culture. But what it does is it teaches us that all those things that make us look different and seem different and sound different externally, it's not that we deny them, but all of a sudden they're not the most important thing anymore. 
They don't define us. We don't identify ourselves by them. Instead, we identify ourselves as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul would go on to say in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And it should go without saying that this is the message of unification that our culture needs. And there's no other message that can unite human beings who are divided like the gospel can and does. There's a long track record of believers being one in Jesus Christ. And, for example, African-American people and white people loving each other and walking together in unity in the gospel. And every other attempt at unity is only superficial and skin deep and won't result in heart unity. And that's what we want. We want heart unity that is the result of the gospel. So the gospel knows no partiality. And then finally, actually, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God in verse 17a. Paul says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The, the righteousness of God is a very important term. This is going to occupy Paul's thoughts in Romans chapter 3 quite a bit. He's going to write more about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. This was very important to Martin Luther, the famous reformer. Um, Martin Luther, as a Roman Catholic monk, taught uh, at the university in Wittenberg, and he started teaching through the Book of Romans. And he was in chapter 1, and he came to this verse, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And God used that to convert Martin Luther. Listen to what he wrote. I hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand the formal or active righteousness by which God is just and punishes unrighteous sinners. Although I lived an irreproachable life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God. Nor could I believe that I had pleased him by the satisfaction I could offer. I did not love, nay, in fact, I hated this righteous God who punished sinners. I was angry with God. Thus I drove myself mad with a desperate and disturbed conscience, persistently pounding upon Paul in this passage 
with a parched and burning desire to know what he could mean. And frankly, I can only imagine Martin Luther doing just that, pounding on Paul. Paul, what do you mean the righteousness of God? Then he says, at last, God being merciful, as I, me as I meditated day and night on the connection of the words, namely, the righteousness of God is revealed in it, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there I began to understand the righteousness of God as that by which the righteous man lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. And this sentence, the righteousness is revealed to refer to a passive righteousness by which the merciful God justifies us through faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. At this I felt myself straightway born again and to have entered through the open gates into paradise itself. From that moment, the whole face of Scripture was changed. And now, in the same degree as I had formerly hated the word righteousness of God, even so did I begin to love and extol it as the sweetest word of all. Thus was this place in St. Paul to me the very gate of paradise. And that leads us to our last point. It requires faith. It requires faith. In verse 17, we've already touched on it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there you have it, the righteousness of God. The Christian message is not, be righteous, go to heaven. The Christian message is, you cannot be righteous enough to go to heaven because all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Instead, God offers as a free gift his own righteousness, the very righteousness of God. And we, what he expects from sinners is the empty hand of faith to receive the free gift. From faith to faith means by faith, from first to last. This is a citation from um, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. And the emphasis is that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and we never graduate to something else. You don't begin by faith and end by the flesh. It's from faith to faith. By faith from first to last. We never establish our own righteous standing before God. Our standing before God is changed fundamentally from the moment we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you believe in Jesus, at that moment, the the God of all of the universe, the, the judge of every soul, even of angels, God declares you perfectly righteous. Not on the basis of anything that you have done, do, or will ever do. 
but it's solely on the basis of what Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness, has done. And it's strictly through faith. Your standing before God as a child of God will, will never change. You never become more justified or less justified. You're justified. You're declared perfectly righteous by God the moment you believe. And your sonship, your adoption as a son or daughter doesn't change either. It's remarkable. But I believe that a lot of people who aren't Christians get stuck at the same spot like Martin Luther was. You're so busy trying to establish your own righteousness. You're trying to prove to God that you deserve to go to heaven. And all of your efforts, it's, it's like the, the victim of a boa constrictor moving and trying to escape. And the, the more that victim moves, the tighter the grip of that terrible snake. And it's the same thing with sinners who are trying to justify themselves before God. The more you try, the more you fail. Because you might get a certain length or depth. You might make some progress. And then the Lord is going to reveal to you your pride. Then you're going to say something, a, a harsh word to somebody. Or you're going you're to be thinking these wonderful thoughts about God. And all of a sudden you're going to think this horribly despicable, polluted thought about somebody. Or whatever. The message of the Bible is just stop trying to save yourself. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance and faith, and receive through that empty, outstretched arm of faith, just receive the free gift of salvation, which is based on the very righteousness of God. Let's pray.